He went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him because the power was coming from him and healing them all. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven, for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. Well, I don't know where you were at the turn of the century. Uh, For some of you, you may not have even been born. I was very fortunate because I was in Africa at the turn of the century. I'd just done a year serving the church in Cape Town, South Africa. It was a great year, lots of fun, but tiring at the same time. And I decided at the end of the year to get a bit of R&R in and take a trip to Zimbabwe to see some friends of mine. And while there, I went to see the mighty, the magnificent Victoria Falls. If you've never been there, I would say put it on your bucket list. It is truly tremendous. Just the, the sound as you approach, the kind of the reverberations beneath your feet as you get near. And, and while I was there, I, I only had a little bit of money on me. And I thought, right, I've got a decision to make. What am I going to do? I'm either going to do the bungee jump off the bridge or I'm going to do some white water rafting in the Zambezi, which is the river below Victoria Falls. And I thought to myself, well, I get value for money. I'm going to do the white water rafting because it will take longer. So that's what I did. Got in the boat and went down with a, a, a few strangers. And it was such good fun. If you've ever done it in the UK, that is like peanuts compared to doing it on the Zambezi. It's so rough. It's amazing. And as we went down, our guide who was there took us carefully. But then when we got to um, rapid number 18, it's etched in my memory, called Oblivion, he said to us, we could either go down the left-hand side, which is quite still, the middle, which is really rough, or we can go down the right-hand side, which is a 50-50 chance of a flip. And me being the young upstart in the boat just immediately said, right-hand side. So we went down the right-hand side and sure enough, we flipped and we were, I was under the water, it was white all around me, but strangely I felt really confident in where I needed to go and so I started swimming as hard as I could to get back to the surface and I kept going and going but then soon realised that I wasn't reaching the surface and I just thought, oh what am I going to do? And in that moment I just thought, right, just let go and let the water bring me to the surface, which is what happened, thank God. Now why do I tell this story in relation to the passage that we've just read? Well, 
What this passage shows us more than anything is that we can think, in fact, more than that, we can be convinced that our way of living is the correct way. Our values, our morals, our aspirations are the way we live life. And that's probably a reflection of how we were brought up, what our our parents taught us. Or it might just be the way we see the world around us. We see most people are following this route And actually, this is the way to go. So I'm just going to follow the crowd and go that way. But what Jesus does in these few verses is he takes what we consider normal and correct and logical and the right way up, and he flips it all and turns it upside down. And so that's why I've entitled today's message, The Upside Down Kingdom. Now, the context for our passage today is that Jesus has been up on a mountainside praying on his own all night. Incredible. And what he does as dawn breaks is he gathers his wider group of disciples to him and he chooses his 12 apostles. And then as we join the passage, we see Jesus coming with his 12 disciples down the mountainside to find a vast crowd waiting for them on a plane. Now, I know where your mind has just gone just then, because as restrictions are lifting, many of us are dreaming about jetting off to far-flung locations. No, I'm not talking about an aeroplane. I'm talking about a plane, a flat piece of land. And mention of this plane is why scholars often uh, differentiate this passage from the passage in Matthew 5, um, which we know as the Sermon on the Mount, which took place on a mountain. Now, some believe it to be the same sermon from two different perspectives, but more likely it was a similar teaching given on a different occasion in a different place, which probably signifies that Jesus taught this message a lot. So it was fundamental to his bringing in this new upside-down kingdom. And it was more than just his wider group of disciples that the Twelve encounter on their return. Luke tells us that there was a large number from the south, from Judea and Jerusalem, in other words, Jews, which probably included teachers of the law and Pharisees who were there to spy on Jesus and try and catch him out. And it also included people from the northwest region on the coast from Tyre and Sidon. These would have been Gentiles or non-Jews or non-believers. There would have been a whole crowd of different people there and it just showed how popular even this early in Jesus' ministry Jesus was. And so he he teaches them and he performs miracles and healings and, and, and we read that soon the people become more focused on the healing than anything else. They kind of transfixed by the healings that Jesus is doing and it says in um, verse 19 the whole crowd kept trying to touch him because power was going out from him and healing them all. Now I'm not surprised at their reaction because people clamour for the spectacular don't they? If you have a need and you can see an immediate solution you go and you grab it Now, when I was reading this, funny enough, it reminded me of some of those 80s programmes. I don't know if you remember them, where they fire £10 notes at a crowd and the crowds just go wild and try and grab them and you just see the carnage that ensues. It's a bit like Black Friday, isn't it, when people go and they see that flat screen TV and they go for it and fight someone else over it. It shows almost the true human condition that when we see something we want or we think we need, we just go for it. And I think although it doesn't specifically say this in the text, I think what Jesus is doing is he's speaking into this by teaching them and showing his listeners that blessing doesn't simply mean good things happening to me. 
Because if we're honest, that's what we think, isn't it? That blessings are just things that are good that happen to me, things that make me feel good. Uh, and we, we say it, don't we? We say, I'm blessed because I've got a roof over my head, or I'm blessed I've got a car, or I've got a family, or because I'm healthy, or whatever. And these things, yes, they are good. And yes, indeed, we could see them as blessings. But actually, blessing, the word blessing goes far, far deeper than that. And this is what Jesus is talking about. So in verses 20 to 23, Jesus explains the values and the pattern of this upside-down kingdom. He says, blessed are you who are poor, who are hungry, who weep. Blessed are you when people hate you and persecute you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. And you think to yourself, if you take off your religious ears for a moment and you really think about this passage, you think, gosh, this is, doesn't seem right. It seems wrong. It seems strange. It seems completely ludicrous. God's economy of blessing it seems to be completely paradoxical. You think, how can the poor be blessed? And I'm sure the disciples were saying, hang on a minute, this isn't what I signed up for. He's just selected me as one of the 12 apostles. And if I'd have known then what I know now, I'd have just said, I'm out. Surely Jesus is confusing things. He's got things muddled. He's got them the wrong way around. Surely it's the rich who are blessed. Surely it's those who are satisfied, who are full and popular and happy. And if I'm honest, when I prepare this message, the temptation is to sort of edit what Jesus is saying, kind of uh, make it sound not so like uh, severe and more palatable and kind of say, did he really mean poor? Did he really mean uh, hungry? Really hungry? Starving? Did he really mean sad and full of woe and mourning? Did he really mean that those people are blessed? Now, unlike Matthew's account, uh, verse five, uh, chapter 5 of Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount, he softens things. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. But actually in this passage, we don't get that luxury. He says, blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who are sad. Blessed are those who are rejected. And so what are we to do with this? Are we to romanticise poverty? Are we all to become monks and nuns? Are we to avoid happiness at all costs? Are we to bat away any compliments we, have, we get? You know, do the typical church thing. Oh, you played lovely today in church. Oh, no, 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 it wasn't me, it was the Lord. To which they reply, oh, it wasn't that good. You know, do, do we bat things away? Is it, is it not how to win friends and influence people, but rather how to lose friends and alienate people? Are we really meant to do these things in order to be blessed? Well, no. Because the very fact that Jesus prefaces this hard teaching by alleviating suffering through the healings shows that he doesn't suggest that we pursue poverty and misery for their own sakes. Poverty, hunger, weeping, being hated aren't the way that you become blessed. They aren't the means of blessing, the qualification that you need to meet in order to be blessed. Pain in and of itself isn't holy or redemptive in the Christian story. Jesus isn't a masochist. He's not expecting us to be masochists, you know, like that guy from the Da Vinci Code, flogging ourselves in order to somehow earn God's favour. God isn't looking down on us, bringing pain to us in order that we might be blessed. No, that's not what he's saying. The God that we see in the Bible, the God I know, is a God of blessing and joy and love. In fact, Jesus' ministry is all about healing and abundance and liberation and joy. So how are we to marry this up with the words that Jesus uses? Well, the point is, 
that though we are not to pursue these things as a means to obtain God's blessing, we also aren't to be surprised or completely undone when they come. The reality is, having been through this year, that people will experience some sort of poverty. Some of your finances will have been pinched because you've lost uh, your job, or some of you would have lost loved ones and you're mourning and you're in pain. That is the reality. That is the reality. Now, as part of my time in South Africa, we went on a missions trip to Lesotho, which is a great country, and, and it, was, it was just a tremendous time. In fact, it was the highlight of my time, uh, my year in South Africa, because we went there and we saw God break in in many and magnificent ways. Many people healed, many people saved. But the thing that stood out most for me was just the people of Lesotho, the Christians there. Though they lived in uh, poverty, many of them, the joy that they exuded was unbelievable. And it wasn't just something they did for show. When I sat down with them and talked about their lives, they would talk about the hardships, but in the same breath, they would talk about the favour of God and the love of God over them, and they would be rejoicing. And I just thought that was so magnificent. And actually, when we go to this passage, it says that blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom. And, and blessed are those who are hungry because you will uh, be satisfied. And there's this sense in which when we know God, when we fully know him, when we're loved by him, when we know his favour on our lives, even though we go through difficult situations, we know that he is with us and that fills us with joy. And the point of this passage is to say effectively, you are my disciples and therefore you are blessed. It's the, that word blessing doesn't just simply mean good things are happening to me. It means in the hardest pain, uh, I know God's favour because I rest in him. Now, the Apostle Paul put it so well when he said in Philippians 4, 11 to 12, I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need and I will know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Now, having described what the upside-down kingdom is, Jesus then goes on to describe what the kingdom he is overturning looks like and pronounces woe over this kingdom. He says, but woe to you who are rich. Woe to you who are well fed now. Woe to you who laugh now. And woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. Now, if we're honest, this list that, that Jesus puts forth is an attractive one. It's, it seems normal. It seems to make sense. I mean, who wouldn't want to be uh, comforted and who wouldn't want to be happy and recognised and rich? It's natural that we would want these things. And so Jesus' listeners would be the same. They'd be thinking this is the right side, side up. This is the right way up. And the reason for this, the reason why we find these values so appealing and the reason why many of us, if we're honest, default to them, don't we? We default to these things is because of a small little three-letter word that we find in this passage, which we might miss, but it's repeated several times and it's the word now. You who are well-fed now. You who laugh now. In this word is found the power of the kingdom of the world. Because if you go for these things, if you go for wealth and comfort and happiness and recognition, they pay off now, don't they? 
They give you immediate results. There's no doubt about, uh, about it. They, they dampen the pain that you feel inside. They make you feel important and special and accepted. No doubt about it. And that's why um, loads of people go for this. Our whole culture goes for these things and, and devotes their life and gives their life to these things to try and attain these things. But the problem with uh, immediate results is that you, you, you just end up wanting more. Now, I don't know if you have any, uh, you have children here, you might be a parent. I'm a parent, I've got four kids. And there's this thing called, that I, I term the Veruca Salt Syndrome. So it's this moment, a bit like that girl in uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory who has her dad wrapped around her little finger and everything she wants, she gets, doesn't she? I want it now, daddy, I want more. And he duly obliges. And in fact, we see that moment, don't we, where she wants the golden ticket. I want to get into that factory. And so he gets all of the people in his factory who normally work on the factory floor opening loads and loads and loads and loads of chocolate bars in order for her to get this ticket. And it's the same with me. I've got uh, uh, my four kids. When they have a birthday, no matter how good the present is that they've just opened, they just spend a nanosecond looking at it before going, more, next one, more, next one. And this is why in our society, when you see people who've reached the pinnacle, who've, who've gone and gone for more and more and more and more, finally get to the peak and they look around and they, what they expect to see is a lovely view, but in fact, all they see is cloud. They're shrouded in cloud. Nothing has changed. There's no breakthrough. And Jim Carrey, a brilliant comedian, um, said this, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so that they can see that it's not the answer. And it's not just worldly possessions, it's also good things. You know, it might be a miracle, it might be a healing that you've got that's radically changed your life. The danger is that we can desire those things and long for more of those things which are good, which are part of God's kingdom, but if they become the focus, if they become our everything, then we lose sight of the giver of the gift. And Jesus is saying, I want you to look at me, the giver of the gift. The other problem with instant results is that although you experience satisfaction now, the things that you put your hope in, the things that promise so much, actually will crumble. If you're relying and building your life on your beauty, your beauty will fade. If you're putting your trust and building your life on people, those people will eventually die. If you're putting your trust and building your life on achievements and power, your records, they will eventually be eclipsed. This is why Luke says, Woe you rich, for you've received your comfort. Woe you well fed, for you'll go hungry. Woe you who laugh, for you will mourn and weep. Because the result of chasing these things, the result of fully focusing and being blinkered on these things is that you are almost certain to get them, but that is all that you will get. Now, does this mean we shouldn't be rich? Does this mean we shouldn't be well-fed or happy or, or spoken well of? Absolutely not. These things will come to us and they're part of life. We will experience these things and they're good things. But if they become the thing that we devote our lives to, then we have lost it. We've missed the point. The great evangelist D.L. Moody put it well when he said, this life is all the heaven the worldling has and all the hell the saint ever sees. Wow, just think about that for a moment. This life is all the heaven the worldling has and all the hell the saint ever sees. 
In other words, if we go for these things, comfort, riches, wealth, happiness, that is, that is all the heaven that we will ever know. That is the peak of our experience. And yet those of us who are Christians, who know pain in this life, that is, that is all the hell that we will see. Because for us, we know that eternity is secure as we put our trust in him. The great um, preacher Francis Chan once put it this way. He, he, he gave an illustration of a, he had a long rope that wrapped round the whole auditorium where he was speaking. And he, it was a vast rope. And then he talked about one little part of the rope and said, this is your life on earth. And this is, you know, there'll be pain, there'll be suffering. We will try our best to get joy and happiness. But ultimately, whatever we experience here is nothing in comparison to the weight of glory that's to come. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So how should we respond? Well, let me finish by taking us back to the scene right at the start of the passage when Jesus and the 12 come down and they're in front of the crowd. And I want you to imagine that scene. I want to imagine, you to imagine that you are there in that crowd. You are listening to Jesus. You are seeing these amazing miracles and you're hearing this hard teaching that he's bringing. And I want you to think, who would I be in that crowd? And it might be that you are one of the wider group of disciples. It might be that you've said yes to Jesus. You're following him. You've put your trust in him but you're kind of on the periphery, you're kind of on the edges of things. And actually, you know, if another Messiah came along, you might go, oh, I'll follow him, or something nice happened, you'd go, I'll go there. And actually, you're not fully committed, and, and you're being shaped by the kingdom of this world. And I want to say to you that though eternity is secure, and you're a Christian, you're going to be with him in heaven, you can also waste your life worrying and stressing and pursuing the wrong thing and actually God wants you to come to him like those Christians in Lesotho come to him and know him Hebrews 11 is a gift to us in that regard in that listed in it are the heroes of faith these are the ones who most fully embraced this upside down kingdom and these are the ones that we should emulate and follow one of those was Moses and it says in verse 26 he regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. Look ahead to your reward and it's not just then but it's now. If we have Jesus in our life now we can know true, full, satisfying life because he is with us in every experience that we go through. Or perhaps you're one of the Gentiles, you're one of those from Tyre and Sidon from the coast and you, you're not a believer yet but you've heard, you've heard about this guy Jesus and you're wanting to check him out because of what you've heard. You might be curious, you might be intrigued and if that's you I want to take you back to the white water rafting story from earlier because for you it might be that when trouble and hardship comes you swim in your direction the way you've always known. You've always known that you swim in that direction and, and you put your trust in things and they cover up your sense of shame and worthlessness and pain that you're feeling. And, and you focus on those things, but actually you realise this isn't getting me anywhere. I'm, I'm, I can't breathe. And you're struggling. And actually God would say to you, come to me. Let go and just 
know that there is a saviour, there is one who can come and rescue you from your pain and your sin and your turmoil. This is the ultimate reversal. 2 Corinthians 8 tells us, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. And this is the ultimate reversal, that Jesus God himself gives up the ultimate riches of heaven, the ultimate fullness, the ultimate joy when he took our sin on his shoulders, when he came to this earth as a poor man and he lived a humble life and took your shame and your, the punishment that you so richly deserved upon himself and suffered ultimate pain and rejection. And it was by his poverty that you, if you put your trust in him, can know richness. This is amazing news. This is great news that we who are deserving of ultimate punishment as we put our faith in him receive eternal joy. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came to this earth. You gave up the glories of heaven and you came and you were a man and you lived among us and you died in our place. We thank you, Lord, that we can fully trust in you and trust, Lord God, that though this life brings challenge and hardship, Lord God, that you never leave us or forsake us. You are with us in it all. It's not a mistake when these things happen. And Lord, I pray you'd guard us uh, against being shaped by this world and and Lord, in those times of hardship, um, going for things which just ultimately fades, that don't satisfy. But Lord, may we rather seek you and put our, our satisfaction and our hope in you. And, and those of us who, who perhaps were curious, we don't know you yet. May we realise that actually going with the crowd, going with the flow isn't, Lord, ultimately the answer. But actually you provide the way to the Father, to relationship with you and I, I pray that you would be with and you would bless and speak to those who, who perhaps are searching that they might look to you and begin to investigate what does this life look like. I pray this all in Jesus name. Amen.